While your day is winding down, they're just getting started. This is South Coast Tonight with Chris McCarthy and Marcus Farrow. They've got you covered on all the news of the day. From local issues to politics on both sides of the aisle. This is the place where the movers and shakers come to be heard. To listen and where they're held accountable. This is South Coast Tonight on WBSM. McCarthy, and as always, we have Marcus Farrow here. Welcome to South Coast tonight, Marcus. What's going on? Nothing. We have a we have an interesting <laughs> show tonight. Yeah, we have a great. We actually have a great show. Uh, we've got a great lineup of guests. Um, and uh, starting off the show is uh, our friend uh, Dartmouth representative Chris Markey. Hey, Chris, how are you? Good. How are you? I might call you Markey, Rep Markey, not. Because I want to be formal, um, but because there's too many Chris's here. <laughs> That's nev- no one ever says that. But yes. <laughs> there's too many Chris's here. <laughs> Feel free to call me Marky. Okay. Does. All right. Cool. So, uh, so, and then that, look after after Chris is done with us, the real Chris, new Chris. Um, we have uh, Tim White from Channel 12 is going to be joining us. We're going to be discussing the state of organized crime in Massachusetts. Many of you saw that Cadillac Frank Salemi uh, shed his evil mortal coil. So we'll talk with Tim White about that. He's been covering the New England Mafia and crime in, Mass- crime in New England for, for decades. There's nobody better, really. So we'll have Tim joining us at 8 o'clock. Um, but in the meantime, let's go with, uh, with a very non-criminal, but, but actually you do defend criminals occasionally, defense attorney, uh, Chris Markey. Uh, Chris, so in a way. <laughs> we, have, we have a very big issue that you and Senator Montigny have spotlighted um, to the benefit of your constituents the change in what they're looking to do for septic systems and um, those laws. Chris, we've had, Marcus had some guests on here. With our yeah, news I, department I, has been covering health, it. I had Health Director Chris Mee showed in, and uh, Tim uh, Weisberg had him in as well. And we did get some robust commentary from the audience on, on this issue. This is going to be a major issue. And, and thank God you and Senator Montigny are, are on the job here. Uh, that's why we elected you. Um, your decades of experience, really, between the two of you um, is going to be important here because we're talking about a major change. Talk a little bit about it, Chris. Give, give an idea to people who are about to be shocked. Well, first off, I'm a little disappointed in the organization of this show. <laughs> Considering we're talking about septics, I probably should have been, been on the second hour. <laughs> too. Uh, but I uh, I do want to say that this is something that has a great impact on tons of residents in Dartmouth and in Westport and particularly down the Cape and Falmouth and other areas along uh, the shoreline. And the biggest thing is, is there is this belief that there is excessive nitrogen going into Buzzards Bay through the estuaries of the Slocum River, the East Paw. Uh, Why don't you just move a little closer? Sure. Yeah. The East Wing of the uh, Westport River. 
and that somehow it's the residents septic that is causing all of this we don't we know from their own report of DEP that it's essentially about 14% of the nitrogen that's gone out of what they call the I think it's the total maximum daily load of nitrogen that goes about 50% comes from natural organic kind of de degradation of the soils and the wood and the timber sure. that's there. So we're addressing only 14% of the nitrogen that goes in. You're saying belief um, uh, as if this this is something that they've, um, DEP has said to have tested and found this to be a fact based on their scientific method and the same thing with the people, um, the, the all the communities on the Cape. Uh, so you're saying belief as if this, uh, their conclusions are wrong or somehow purposefully misleading? No, I think if it's 14% and you're addressing, if you're addressing only 14% of the issue, you're really not addressing the issue. Okay. And right. so right. even their science at best has it at 14%. So if you're going to address 14%, what kind of impact is it really going to have? Are the new septic systems, even if they cut 80% of nitrogen and 14% of the, the nitrogen discharge, that's still very small. That ends up being about 10% of all nitrogen that's being uh, discharged into the estuary. So why are we only dealing with, in the end, 10%? It yeah. doesn't make sense. Well, so... Um this, I think it's important to, to note one of the reasons why there has been such uh, strong commentary, both from our audience, from you and Senator Montigny, from the town departments as well, and in, in, in the town of Dartmouth, which you represent, is that this could come at an enormous, uh, enormous personal cost to homeowners uh, in Dartmouth, right? About 50K, um, it could be, to upgrade their septic systems. So this is um, one of the things that you know, when when it changed back in the 90s, the septic, we had it kind of going forward so that if you were going to you're going to sell your property and it didn't meet the standards, you had to put in a new septic. Mm -hmm. Right. Or if you're going to build, you got to get built when you build a new home where there is no town sewer, you're going to use septic. You got to have the, the best there is. It seems to make sense. This yeah. process that they're imposing or trying to impose would say that within five years, no matter what. So even if you got a brand new septic eight months ago or 10 months ago, you're going to have to replace it. Now, some of them will cost up to $50,000. But, you know, anywhere between 15 and 35 is probably the realistic number. But that's a lot of money yeah. you know, for something that really you've just, you've just invested in yourself. Yeah. So I don't think... Um, the process in which they're thinking about how to develop this and how to implement it is making sense. Okay. So we're speaking with Chris Markey, the representative from Dartmouth. But Chris, <clears throat> this doesn't affect just Dartmouth, obviously, right? Th this affects everyone who's not on a sewer line or can in the future. It, it can in the future. Right, right now, they talk about in the watershed areas. And so when we look at our estuaries, you know, Dartmouth has Potomska River. They got uh, the the Slocum. Slocum River. They got uh, really the east branch of the what uh, the um, Westport River, and that's really from the far north end of 
Dartmouth that it starts up and comes down. So, you know, in the end, it's going to start here and it's going to move its way uh, east, probably to hit Fairhaven. All right. Hit Mattapoisett, Marion, Wareham. And it's already going to be on the, the Cape. So, well, you know, it's going to happen. And I just don't think it's realistic. I mean, I understand that I have a lot of lofty ideas and goals, but they're not realistic. (laughs) I always wanted to dunk um, dunk a basketball, but, you know, something's out out of touch. But I think, you know, in the end, I don't think that we can realistically do it in the way in which our economy is set up and how um, how our communities are set up. So we need to find a solution, but... It's not going to be on the backs of the residents. So when I had the um, health director on, Christopher Michaud, he, he, uh, the health director in the town of Dartmouth, he um, he had said that you know every town in the Cape uh, is is would be under this regulation as of now, and he said it may work for Cape. And I know that that special committee, um, uh, one of your colleagues on Beacon Hill, Julian Sear, was on that committee to uh, come up with the proposed regulations. But he said. Uh, but but what Chris Ramisha said was basically just because it might work for those communities doesn't necessarily mean it works for Dartmouth, the community that you represent. Is that yeah? yeah. So actually, I was I was with some people uh, from the North Dartmouth, and they they're in a development that was built probably in the late nineties, and there's probably fifty sixty homes in the development, and there's about seven or eight properties that aren't on the watershed, but the other remaining 53 are okay so it's amazing so just to to refocus this because i think if if you started out listening now you're maybe really paying attention when you realize this may cost you a lot of money chris you brought up some very interesting figures you said that septic systems are responsible for only by their by their figures 14 percent of the of this uh this problem the rest is naturally occurring uh, the the breakdown of biodegradables, uh, wood, things like that that occur naturally. Um, so even if they curb this by fifty percent, that would still be under ten percent of the problem at a tremendous financial cost to individual families. Yeah, if I understand this correctly. So yeah, it would be. So I'm just saying, even if you took the fourteen percent and you said it was eighty percent effective, right? You're still only addressing about. 10% of the whole the whole issue and you have commercial uh, businesses that have an effect on it you have agricultural community uh, farms and things like that that have an effect on it um, fertilizers on homes have an effect on it so there's a mil- there's a whole bunch of different factors that affect this and when you focus on only one which is a small percentage do you really want to do you really want the people of the community to invest that large amount of money for such a small return on the investment? So, Chris, one of the things that Marks and I learned from your, your, your state rep campaign was when you came in and discussed the amount of agricultural business you have in your district, um, which is something you just brought up. Um, for I, always, I st- always tell the deer hunting story if you ever come up in conversation. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just so good. It's a great... It's a great understanding, really, of how, how encompassing your job really is, yeah. how many different factors are involved. But you're talking about education, perhaps, education campaigns on the use of fertilizers, things like that. But when you talk about big agribusiness um, for our area, things that have to have that type of stuff, 
Is there a movement to try to curb that, uh, which would be a real economic problem? Well, no, that's the thing is in Dartmouth and Westport, it's farming as of right. So you have a right to do these things. Okay. The question is, is how do we do it and how do we regulate it? And again, one of the the big picture here is, is um, I don't, is DEP is getting pressures from elsewhere, right? We're not building new um, landfills. They need a place to be able to put items that would typically go into a landfill so they can reduce the need to transport trash outside of Massachusetts. One of the things they've come up with is composting. and They've expanded the regulations on composting. Well, what is one of the largest uh, contributors to the nitrogen discharge is composting. So commercial composting has an effect, but commercial composting is acceptable under agriculture. So how do you stop that? And oh, that's very interesting. So what, now you have uh, farming as of right. Composting is a right under the farming, the community farming. So now you say, all right, who's in control of that? And now you got the Department of Ag Resources pointing the finger at DEP and DEP pointing the finger at Department of Ag Resources. In the meantime, the, the odor smells horrible in the people in North Dartmouth, and they're trying to battle that that fight. So... It's it's a matter of trying to find that balance where the pressures for DEP, which are understandable, then trying to be creative in the ways in which they can uh, resolve the, the trash issue. They're requiring more composting of restaurants and uh, businesses that have a discharge of, I think it's over a 1,000 pounds of waste food a week. They have to f- compost it. So... There's clearly a business there that's needed. It's keeping it out of the landfills because there was obviously a need to do that. So now they're stuck in the middle of trying to figure out how do we do this, and they want to ignore that because of the pressures that they get from elsewhere. All right, right. We're speaking with Chris Markey, the uh, state representative for New Bedford and, and Dartmouth, <clears throat> about uh, some of the some of the new things that are going on uh, regarding septic systems and. Um, and, and Buzzards Bay. Um, Chris, I can remember that um, I grew up in Freetown, as you know, when my, we sold my de- mom and dad's house when, if they passed away. That wasn't a big deal for us to upgrade the septic system because we were selling the property, so there's a lot of money on the table, and we were able to absorb it. Um, not everyone has that situation because most people, as you're talking about, are not going to be doing this when they're selling the house. You know, to comply with regulation, we had to, you know, have the septic checked. But I can remember my time on the Board of Health and Board of Selectmen out in Freetown. People would come in for variances because unlike my dad's lot, my dad had plenty of land. So new septic system was just a matter of paying for it. But there are some people, they don't have the land, right? And if there aren't sewer lines running out there, people are going to lose their houses. With, with these, some of these laws, you do not have the land to accommodate an updated system. Well, I think the, that would be put into the same place where the, the current septic is. But this is one of the problems, too, is mm-hmm. they want you to jump onto this watershed permit uh, for the town, and then all of a sudden the responsibility for enforcement is within the town. Well, we're putting in what they call these IA systems, which are innovative alternatives to the typical system. And... The IA systems require special technology and people who are licensed, I guess, I don't know what exactly the term is, but licensed engineers who deal with the waste. 
Yeah. So there, there's not enough of those individuals to actually go around and actually inspect these properties right. over the course of time. And then who pays for it? How is the, is the town going to be responsible in some fashion for infor- making sure the enforcement is there? Um, and, and within each town, who's going to be responsible for it? Is it going to be the Department of Public Infrastructure, like in New Bedford, or, or the DPW in Dartmouth? Or is it going to be the health department that does it? Right. So there's a lot of... It's a huge problem. It's not a simple solution to this. And when you don't have the resources available to enforce what's required... Why are we even going to have the regulation? Forget about all the other stuff. Right. It's just general civics that you understand that if the government can't be responsible for it, right. why are we imposing the responsibility on it? Right, right. So, um, yeah, that's the, so that was the, the other thing is the alternative to homeowners personally upgrading their septic system at a personal cost. There was this uh, permitting that the town could do. Um, but you're saying that this is essentially not... Uh, probably equally unworkable and i think chris or misha said this too it doesn't actually even guarantee that you'll meet the goal that dep is even setting for you in the first place is that is that correct yeah so the other thing is is that the technology for this these upgrades it doesn't exist yet essentially well i i find it find it difficult to figure out exactly that that answer (laughs) it's weird Um, and is it is it is it with you know, you, you're supposed to have the best available. So does that mean, like, you upgrade your iPhone every eight months because yeah. they got a new system? Is it that you're going to have to have some type of upgrade over the course of a period of time to be able to do that? I just, I don't see it realistic. Yeah. Um, I just don't, I, I don't, I'm not sure of the motivation. The ultimate motivation behind it is probably to try to get every town to have a sewer system. Yeah. But that is nearly, well, that is impossible. Yeah. So we're speaking with Chris Markey, who's the state representative from Dartmouth. We're talking about these Title Five proposed Title Five upgrades that could um, that could uh, end up incurring an, a, a pretty high cost for homeowners and or the towns in general uh, in in Dartmouth uh, throughout in many communities in southeastern Massachusetts. What we're going to do now is we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Yes. Sir. Welcome back to South Coast Tonight, uh, Marcus. I'm Chris. And he's also Chris. Uh, Chris Rep. Chris Markey is here with us. We're talking about the proposed Title V, which is septic uh, um, regulations by the Department of Environmental Protection that could cost uh, homeowners in Dartmouth and homeowners throughout southeastern Massachusetts um, a, a pretty high personal cost um, to upgrade their septic system based on technology that we're not entirely sure um, exists for all intents and purposes. Um, is there any other important points that you think people should know about this uh, proposal? I know there's been a lot of robust public comment. There's been some meetings. You can still make public comment to DEP, I think, through the 30th. Um, is there anything else that you think is worth mentioning with this? No, I, I think when you do make the public comment that you don't just cut and paste someone else's words, that you write. Yeah. You take the 15 or 20 minutes that you're allowed. I mean, you can take as much time as you want, but take 15 or 20 minutes of your day if it's that important to you, to write and say, this is the, how it's going to affect me and this is why it's not the right thing to do. If you have individual letters, they're going to have a greater impact. If you think about it, I mean, it's the cost of somewhat of a democracy, you hope. Spend a little bit of time, put a little bit of an effort in, and the return on it will be much better than just cutting and pasting an email 
that everyone is sending. Because no one's going to really pay attention to the well, no one takes it the second time or the third time or the fifteenth time. No one takes it seriously if it's if it's a boilerplate thing. Um, they just think, okay, well, it's just you know, um, sort of this uh, the hive mind type stuff. I remember when the city council got some like uh, same uniformed letter about something. They got the same uniformed response from a bunch of people. Right. And they're like, well, okay, whatever. Right. And the 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 important thing to remember is, I'm just looking at um, Chris Shea from the Dartmouth Week. He wrote, wrote wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. You have to have Title Five and watershed permit in the subject line, um, title. The number five and watershed permit. I want to be specific that the and is an ampersand, okay. which is the and symbol for people who don't know, um, because uh, I don't know if how exact it has to be. And based on how this whole process has gone in general, I think they probably might. I'm not saying that they would, but they might look for reasons to not consider the public comment and maybe not having an ampersand is one of those reasons. Right. But make sure that's in the subject line when you send the email into the. Uh, Department of Environmental Protections. It's dep.talks at mass.gov. So, um, so it's, um, Chris, I, I, I want to just encourage people to, to participate in this process because <clears throat> as um, you, you were one of the participants, uh, as an example, in the scallop issue, and the scallopers came out mm. as individuals. Yeah, The workers came out as individuals. They told their own stories. They lobbied as citizens, they told, you know, their own unique stories. And by doing that, they created an incredible impression on that on the Seafood Commission there that was working to make a decision. I think that, that, that's what you're saying here is that people have to spend a little time, tell your own story, to make an impression on the DEP so that they, they do realize this isn't just a grassroots, uh, an AstroTurf campaign, that it's a legitimate citizens up in arms over this. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of my frustrations with kind of our general democracy is it, it takes an effort. Yeah, right. You can't, you know, people who say they're, oh, they can't vote. I mean, we've given every opportunity for people to vote. Yes. And when people say, well, I could have done it, I didn't do it, I would, well, I should have done it, I don't know, you know. It's like, listen, we give you, what is it, eight days before an election. Right eight hours a day to go in we can mail it to you you don't even have to leave your house and <laughs> yeah. still people don't do it it takes an effort if we want to have the the government to work for the people the people have to do put in a little bit of an investment to it this is one of those times where if you listen to the same people over and over again it doesn't mean anything when you bring in new people under the umbrella it makes a difference and i think one of the things that's interesting about it is you have the opportunity to give a unique perspective of it and how it affects you as an individual some you know my my court experience has always provided me the opportunity to sit down with a client and look at something in a very individualistic way yeah and if you can make the pitch before a judge in a very individual way you're going to get what you want but you got to be able to do it. You got to spend the time. And you got to put the investment in. And, and literally, if you took, you know, fifteen minutes or twenty minutes of your day, put your phone down, grab your computer, email these people, right, and write in why it would affect you, not in a curse way, not in a crazy way, but just say, I am a family of four. I work at the same job for the last twenty-five years. I don't participate in government that often. 
But when I see something wrong, this is how I act. I act, and I look at this as being something that is unrealistic for me to be able to survive with my family, right. knowing I'm two years away from paying college tuitions. Right. Whatever so, it is, whatever circumstances you have, put it in perspective. So um, if the, let's say, all right, public comment passes, maybe you know people make their uh, public comments known as robust or not robust as it may be um, in opposition to this, Let's say the DEP um, finalizes these regulations. They say, this is what we're doing. This is what you're going to have to do. Um, is there a legislative avenue um, to try to override this? Would you and Senator Montigny be exploring those legislative avenues? Yes. So let's just go back for basic civics, right? There's, <laughs> yeah. there's the Constitution, which is like the Bible. Sure. Right. You got to follow it. That's the big, the big thing. The next level down is statute, mm -hmm. and the next level down from that is the regulations. Right. So if we're not satisfied, we'll find a solution in a legislative way to make it a statute that makes something more reasonable that can that can put the water down whatever they've done. Right. I don't want to get to that. No, of course not. That I takes a that, long time, too. I mean, too. the other part is we're giving it, if you look at it in the big world of how government works, why are we going to give them responsibility in the future if they're going to screw this up? Right. Right. <laughs> right. right. So now, yeah. now they're playing with it as, hey, all right, so you, we're going to make regulations that are unreasonable. Then all, our, all, the, all the statutes that we create we're not going to give you the discretion to do anything. Right. And then we control more. And that's not the way it should work. We should give these people the discretion that's responsible. Right. And they act responsibly. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, the legislative process does take a while. It's going to have to go through all the committees. It's going to have to go through. Then it's going to have to go through the floor. Go to the floor. You you know, you might have the majority of the legislatures, but if it's not a veto-proof majority, then the government, governor can overturn it. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of ways that the legislative process could be could be defeated. I mean, I know you're going to work hard, and Senator Martigny is going to work hard if that happens, but preferably people should make their voice heard and uh, stop this where it is now if they can yes let me let me make my republican pitch against term limits right now because i remember when term limits were a big deal everyone wanted them um you can see here exactly why these are my words not uh, representative markey's but you have career bureaucrats who feel they can make decisions yeah fortunately we have legislators who recognize a problem and have the ability to stand up for us as citizens against career bureaucrats. Now we need career bureaucrats, but more importantly, we need legislators, guys who've had time in the field, guys who know how to do things, guys who've been there a little while. So they, they build relationships, they know how to do things. And they also, the legislate, the, the career bureaucrats know I don't have to wait this guy out. Years ago, a, a former Senator said to me, Chris, cause when I was four term limits, he said, Chris, what happens when the bureaucrat says, I don't care because that Senate is going to be gone in two years anyway. I'll just do whatever I want. Right. right? The legislature, Mark Montigny, uh, Representative Markey, they're the answer to when government becomes too big. Let's take a break. 508-996-0500. 1420 WBSM can now be heard on 99.5 FM. The mission of Paralyzed Veterans of America is clear accessibility 
Veterans who have served and sacrificed the best of themselves deserve access to the best our country has to offer. Access to meaningful employment. Access to the veterans' benefits they've earned. Accessible homes and vehicles. And access to every part of their communities. With PVA staff working inside VA hospitals, no other veterans organization has provided more real-time, ongoing support for paralyzed veterans and their families. PVA is proud to serve veterans across all branches, all generations, and all conflicts. Our nation's heroes fought for your independence. Join PVA in fighting for theirs at pva.org. Get breaking news alerts, stream audio, send us text messages, and get live traffic and weather updates all on the WBSM app. Download it now from your app store or at WBSM.com. You set up some of them for success. I do. <laughs> some I set up for failure. That's true. Actually, they set themselves up for failure. That's a good point. Right. That's a good point. Um, I'm just, just swinging the just, bat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we're here with uh, State Rep. Chris Markey from Dartmouth. Uh, you had a question? Yeah. So before we um, we we we, we um, transition to the to the holidays uh, and Christmas, um, I wanted to ask you about your friend Charlie Baker. Um, Getting his new job at the NCAA. What do you think of that? What do you think of the job he's going to do? Well, I'm glad we're switching subjects. <laughs> You've ever sewerage wasn't ever, enough. Well, for you? no. Well, the the joke at my house has always been that at some point during a dinner it comes back to bodily functions. So I'm <laughs> done talking about septic. Um, no, I'm I'm excited for the opportunity for Governor Baker to get that. Um, I think that he is one in a unique position, and again, there's. Is a hot topic is how college athletes are paid or if they should be paid or how they should be paid. And I think there is significant ethical issues with it and it's a balancing act. And I would say compare it to his COVID experience where he found the balance and the tightrope that needed to be walked um, throughout COVID. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where, again, there is going to be a tightrope to walk between the needs of the student athletes and not being taken advantage of by the universities. Right. But also the single purpose of making sure that they are student athletes, that they are students, number one. Right. But they should be compensated in some fashion. And I'm sure that there will be some way in which there'll be a middle road. Yes. In which uh, they create uh, maybe trusts for the, the athletes uh, where there's money that is kept for them after they graduate. Um, again, part of this is is there's very few who become professional athletes. You gotta Correct. remember that. They're so few, it's incredible. And that you need to find things for division three players, division two players. Um, we're not all Alabama football that can cover the cost of a swim team in Alabama or a fencing team in Alabama right. that they can cover for. When you look at the, the vast majority of the student-athletes is that they put their heart and soul into it. They struggle financially, many of them, and they should be compensated because they provide a huge asset to the school, 
to the school experience for the non-athletes who can go to the games and can be entertained. And they also provide an economic gain for the communities in which they they, they uh, reside. So all of those things are factors in which they're taking advantage of 18 to 22-year-olds every weekend in the SEC, and they should be paying something. The question is, is how much? And then the other part is not being taken advantage of by small businessmen who try to give them their NILs there and right. all that other yeah. stuff. We've seen horror shows in the past. So I think <clears> it's <throat> an incredible challenge, but I think the COVID thing, it's just like the perfect example of how he was able to, he didn't satisfy the crazy liberals and he didn't satisfy the crazy right-wingers. Right, um, he clearly. He looked down the middle, he looked at the science, he looked at what would been what would have worked, and I think he did a marvelous job at it, and I think he could do the same for the NCAA, give it some credibility. So you've worked with the governor. Um, you know him. Without, no pun intended, but there's a lot of balls in the air here with, with all these different campuses, all these different sports. And as you point out, it's not all Division I. Um, what is his level of attention to detail? It's a funny story. It's actually, is, uh, this is a story that Strauss told me, uh, all on the South Coast Rail. I'm probably stealing his thunder at some point. But Strauss told me a story. They had a meeting early on in Baker's administration because he wanted to do something for South Coast Rail. And it was like at 8 at night in his small office off to the side, and he had like a whiteboard. And they were going over everything in the tracks from North Quincy into JFK and okay. who owned the property and the engineering and all yeah. that. And he went over that, They just the two of them sitting over everything and how that worked. And after that discussion, they came up with the plan of how to how to do this coming up from New Bedford and Fall River through Bridgewater. So but actually, yeah, he is involved. So in okay. so actually, J uh, Jack Spillane, uh, he filled in for us last Thursday. He had Bill Strauss on, and Bill Strauss, for people who don't know, is the chairman of the Transportation Committee in the House. You know, the rep from Metapoise. And he he uh, Strauss gave the lion's share of the credit. To Charlie Baker, out of all the governors that have been there over his 30-year tenure, gave the lion's share of the credit to Charlie Baker for South Coast Rail happening. Would you say that? I think you said that, too. Yeah. No, I would say that. I would. I think, in the end, he, he's the one who got it over the finish line. He's the one who gave it the most momentum. He's the one who gave it the most funding. I think that the conversation at least initiated really with Governor Patrick, but it was it was really – the, the majority of the work was done by the Baker administration. Oh, okay. Wow. So, um, and it's funny because he was against it when he first ran. He was. In 2010. And uh, and then he really took a leadership uh, position on it. What do you think are some of the skills he's going to bring from his his time as governor to the new job? I think one is listening to people. Yeah. Listening, listening to the people who are smarter than him. And there's not probably a lot, but that makes him so much smarter is uh, – the people who have and listen to both sides and then make an educated decision, knowing not everyone is going to get what they want and being able to have the courage to do that. And I think, again, he's shown that throughout. Uh, if there's one thing that he's been able to do, I think, very effectively is to make decisions and stand by them for good or bad. But that's what you want. I don't agree with everything he did, but in the end, he was reliable. He was consistent. And he kind of knew where he was coming from. So people trusted that. And when people trust their government, they're willing to invest in it. They're willing to spend time in figuring out solutions to real problems. And I think that's what he could do. So um, he's gone. He's leaving us.
Um, kind of funny that he decided not to run again. Um, and he, uh, he, as he left, there was no real Republican opponent. There was no Republicans whatsoever, really, to 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 maybe um, defend his positions. Or, although I don't think a lot of them agreed with him, that's why they 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 opposed him. Um, but now we have a new governor coming in. Um, what sense are you getting so far about her administration, if any? Well, first, it should be a reflection of the Massachusetts Republican Party that they need to change. Yes. Yeah. Um, if they're going to have an impact on anything and try to move the needle in any way, they have to think about their own purpose and who's leading them. Correct. So that that's one thing that it's sad that a guy like Governor Baker saw what what we all see and decided not to do it because he didn't want to deal with right. that crew for another four years. Correct. And it yeah. made sense. It was beneath him. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's beneath everybody. Yeah, right. I, mean, I, just, <laughs> yeah. I just, but I I'm saying that I'm just saying the sitting two-term governor with the highest approval ratings of the country. It's it's definitely beneath him yeah. for sure. So well, how I see things going now is, yeah. I, you know, I'm optimistic. I think everyone is uh, optimistic to see um, how things develop. I know the first few appointments that um, Governor-elect Healy has put in have our experienced Beacon Hill people who've been around who know that. Uh, Kate Cook is one who's going to be the chief of staff, and that's yeah. probably one of the most important positions up there is being able to kind of sift through uh, the important stuff, make sure uh, Governor Healy will have that access right. uh, to to the right issues. Um, and I, I, mean, I just feel confident that she's highly intelligent. She's a leader. She's charismatic, and she's going to be able to connect with a lot of people who I think will be surprised. Yeah, I mean, I really am wishing her the best of luck. I, you know, um, she looks like she just wants to continue what Charlie Baker was doing. It sounds anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, I think obviously it will be a little bit to the left of that, but sure. that's that. And it should happen. She's a Democrat and it might be that way. But the principles of what he did was to listen to everybody, to understand that even her own base is going to be upset with her at here and there. So I think she's got the courage to do it and uh, she'll be able to do it. Take a quick break. We'll be right back. If you want to hear everything on a podcast, Marcus. Chris Markey's on it too now. Yes. <laughs> uh, there's an off-air podcast. It's like the Nixon tapes. Here, We're secretly recording, it. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Chris, um, it's the holidays. Uh, Hanukkah. Hanukkah and Christmas is around the corner. Um, what does that mean to you? I, I think it just means having your family around. Uh, yeah. Mostly and your friends and hopefully have a, have an opportunity to share some good laughs and just kind of recall the year. Uh, Your kids are away at school, stories. right? Uh, I got one away now. Okay, one two, away. Two, yeah. two in the real world, one in college and one in high school. So um, you hope, you know, you can share those times, listen to the, the kids' stories and all that stuff, which is great. But I think, uh, you know, then mostly my parents, you know, that. Every year, probably for the last 15, I've said, geez, maybe this is my father's last one, but oh. don't want to jinx it either. But, <laughs> right. uh, yeah. He, you know, he, they're the funniest, the stories that they have. Sure. And um, I thought I heard every story, but probably in the last four years, there's a few new stories that come out that are just absolutely hilarious. You can't believe I go, Dad, you didn't do that. He goes, yeah, I did. I did. I did. <laughs> So that, that type of stuff uh, is pretty funny. Um, but that's it. Is really just then also thank 
God for what what we're given. Um, I've been blessed my whole life. I've had caring parents, loving family. Um, what matters. And um, I know that a lot of people don't have that. So I'm fully aware of that. And I always uh, am very grateful for that. But, you know, I know I'm fortunate. So hopefully we can get back at some point. For those people who, who, who don't realize, uh, they, he, Chris's father was a former mayor of New Bedford and um, was a judge in the district court for many, many years. Um, the, um, I don't know if they're listening to South Coast tonight, but I know in the past we've gotten your parents listening to the program. Um, I tend to doubt it. Probably first they couldn't hear it, but uh, <laughs> they are, <laughs> they, they are uh, religiously watching uh, college basketball for the most part at this point. At this hour, I would say they're watching any game they can get their hands on. Really? Yeah. If my daughter's not playing, then they're doing that. So uh, that wraps it up. Chris Markey, thanks have for nice joining Christmas. us. Yeah, have you a great too, guys. Christmas. Thanks for everything. Happy uh, New Year, too. Stay tuned, guys. We've got uh, we've got WPRI's Tim White on uh, right after the news in the 8 o'clock hour. So we'll, uh, we'll see you on the other side.